This is They Create Worlds, episode 116, the Atari games you are looking for. Welcome to They Create Worlds. I'm Jeffrey and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Hey, hello. Once again, we're going to return to a subject that we have talked about so many times on this podcast. Atari. But not Atari the brand name, Atari's leading to the fall of the video game industry, Atari's history of its brand. That one time we did a lot of things about Atari... No, we're going to focus on a special Atari, one we haven't talked about before. That's little-known Atari that just sort of lives out in the etherlands. Atari Games. Right, the company that its employees really considered to be the real Atari after the split, because, of course, Atari started as an arcade company. All of that consumer stuff and home computer stuff was piled on top of it. So, from the perspective of the people at Atari Games, they were the real Atari, and... When Warner split it up, it was just stripping away all that excess stuff, excess fat, and getting back down to what they were. And there was a great deal of continuity at Atari Games, unlike at Atari Corporation, when Jack Trammell purchased those assets of Atari and folded them into what he then called Atari Corporation. He basically didn't hire anyone into the new company. At the time, it was portrayed as layoffs by Jack. Technically, Jack Trammell was picking who would make the jump, and then Warner was laying everybody else off. He brought very few people over, whereas the Atari Games crowd was many of the same designers, engineers, programmers, technicians that had been with the company since not just the late 70s, but even the mid and in some case early 70s. The true Atari, in a way, Atari Games... This time, we're going to do a company in one episode. I'm saying that. I'm saying that very boldly right here. There's a couple of reasons for that, though. Jeff's grinning, which, of course, you can't see. But there's a couple of reasons that this will happen. First, we don't have to go through a convoluted origin, which is often what takes up a lot of time in the part one of our episodes. The company already exists at the start of our episode. We'll talk a little bit about the carve-up, but the company's there. No background needed. Second of all is I don't know as much about the internal workings of Atari games as I do about some of the other companies we talked about. I haven't really interviewed anybody that was at Atari games at this point uh, since they were in the arcade industry, the coin-op business. It's a little bit more low profile in a lot of ways. There's not as much interesting stuff necessarily to dig up. So uh, a lot of what we'll be doing is actually just kind of celebrating some of the games that they did which is a good thing because they did some very interesting games. The period we're going to cover is from the time that Warner let them go and they were purchased by Namco, which happened at the beginning of 1985. We'll cover some of the mid-84 stuff briefly, but basically taking it from 1985 until it was purchased by Midway. The company continued on for several more years after that, first under the Atari Games name and then as Midway Games West, But that's kind of a different phase because they were no longer quite as in control of their own destiny. Though, as we'll see, it's a company that was never really that much in control of its destiny. Because as we talked about in our Atari Brands episode, 
it is a company that was basically being passed around amongst a group of corporate overlords, finally ending up at Midway, which kept it going until closing it down for good and all in the year 2003. But before we start with that, a little bit of podcast talk. We will be doing our live streaming of talking about the entire video game industry on June 28th. That's right. As uh, regular listeners know, we do a big, usually three, one time four, we don't talk about it, part extravaganza at some point during the year covering something that's a bigger topic or something in a little more depth, however you want to look at that kind of thing. This year, we are doing the grand overall big picture history of the entire video game industry, breaking it down similar to how my books are broken down. So really only taking it to about 2005 and and just very little on what's happened in the last decade and a half or so. But this gives us a chance to connect some of the dots because we talk about a lot of subjects in depth and we always try to link back what we're talking about to the bigger picture of video games. And there are certainly themes, concepts, terms that we hit on over and over again in individual episodes. But it's nice to just be able to take a step back and say, okay, here's the grand overarching tale that all of these smaller tales fit in. Obviously, it'll be very big picture or it would be 30 episodes or, you know, 115 episodes. Just kind of encapsulating that big picture. As we have done the past couple of times, because we're very crazy people, we are going to record all three of these episodes, hopefully three, in one sitting, and we are going to live stream that recording to you, the listener, in this case the viewer, on our Twitch channel, which is? Our Twitch channel is, of course, twitch.tv slash podcast. That's right. We'll live stream that. We'll have upgraded our look a little bit. I mean, we're not fancy professional streamers, so our look's never that fancy, but we try to get a little new equipment every time we do something like this. Uh, Of course, part of the reason that we're able to do that is through the generous support of our patrons. We do have a Patreon. We do encourage you, if you like the product we're putting out, that you maybe throw us a buck or two an episode, or more than that, if you're feeling generous. The podcast will always be free. It's free now and forever until we sell out to some big media company. Don't worry, they're not interested. There's no obligation to give, but it is nice. It allows us to cover our basic hosting costs, some of the equipment. Jeff upgrades little bits and pieces every year. If we get enough funds, it can even go to bigger and bolder things. It can go to aiding the research into these topics that we cover, I like to think, in a good amount of depth. So just want to throw that out there. In fact, we don't at the moment offer a lot of stuff, bonus stuff, I should say, through the Patreon. Obviously, it supports all this hundreds of hours of content we've put out over the past five years. But we are actually going to start doing something new that will both be available in some forms to the general public and in limited time form exclusively to our patrons. And Jeff, you can tell them a little more about that since you're the one spearheading all of this. Yes, uh, we can thank uh, one of the fans on the Gaming Alexandria Discord channel. By the way, shout out to Gaming Alexandria. A great bunch of guys and gals from literally all over the world that are incredibly dedicated to video game history and particularly video game preservation. 
lots of scanning activity going on there, also a lot of archiving of material. Anyone, I think, I mean, I'm not a moderator there, but pretty much anyone that's interested can join that Discord, the Gaming Alexandria Discord. They've been great friends to me and to Jeff in all of our work. If you're interested in this kind of stuff, and if you're not, I know I always say this, but if you're not, why are you still here? I would definitely check out Gaming Alexandria, both their website, they have a website, and their Discord. Sorry I, uh, to interrupt you there, Jeff. I just figured if we're mentioning GA, we should give them a proper shout-out. That's a great group. Definitely, and Alex and I are both in there all the time, and feel free to hit us up if you feel like chatting. Anyway, the thing that we're doing is transcription. I'm playing around with taking some of the funds we've gotten from Patreon in order to help me pay for and use a transcription service where it will do some really good AI in order to transcribe what we say, and then all I have to do is re-listen to the episode and then clean it up, try to get some of the punctuation roughly right, bug Alex and go, okay, this Japanese name or this video game over here, how is that spelled exactly? Or this guy's name, <laughs> how is that spelled? Because I have no clue, and this thing obviously doesn't know. What the goal there is, is to provide a text version of everything that we said on the podcast, so that's searchable, that's usable to you as a resource. How this will work is that Everything older than three years, as far as the podcast goes, is free to everyone. Everyone has access to that. And uh, just to put that in context, we are in the midst of our fifth year. It'll be, uh, I guess, five years in September, won't it, Jeff? That it will. We've been doing this for pretty much five years at this point. So when we're saying that anything older than three years is going to be available for free, there is going to be a ton of content available for free right off the bat once we get them all transcribed, because we've been doing two episodes a month since September 2015, so you can do that math. Anything more recent than three years ago, how are we doing that, Jeff? So How we're doing this is it's going to be on a rolling basis. So the first 30 minutes of every episode will have its transcription free to the public, just to sort of get you an idea of what's in that episode. As new episodes get put on and then get transcribed, the oldest episode will roll over and become completely free. There will be this continuing rolling cycle of the last three years of transcriptions being a Patreon-only exclusive. After those three years, they become free, and that's just the transcriptions. So you can have the entire transcription of the last three years at any level of Patreon. We don't care if you give us a buck, 50 cents, whatever it is, their lowest thing is. There's no tears or anything with this. As I put new episodes out, the oldest episode will become completely free. So it's just a rolling thing. It's just a, a compromise of a way of just having a, hey, we had this neat thing for Patreons. Just say, hey, we're glad you're supporting us. Here's this extra bonus thing. But also still keeping what we like about this podcast, which is we want things to be free. We want that knowledge to be out there. It will be out there. It will fully be out there. It just might take a little bit of time. And just uh, because we've said a lot, just uh, be very clear. These are just the transcripts. The podcast, the audio recordings will always be free, every single one of them. It's just the transcripts of that audio that we're going to do on this rolling basis. And, you know, some podcasts do special patron episodes and stuff like that, which is totally cool. Everyone should do that kind of thing as they see fit. We want the whole podcast to always be free, but by doing this transcription thing, we can give a little something extra while still maintaining that balance. 
pretty much, if you really like listening and reading with us, or you're in a different country and English isn't your first language, you have something that hopefully will make it easier for you to understand what the heck Alex is saying. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, we got the big recording thing coming June 28th. Tune into that. We've got exciting new stuff coming for patrons and even non-patrons in terms of the old stuff with transcriptions. And also more bonus stuff coming down the pipeline because I have a fancy little camera I'm playing around with. That's true. That camera will make its star debut on our live stream June 28th, but Jeff is thinking of other ways to make use of that as well. Some of it will be done once Alex and I can actually see each other in person without, you know, spreading the plague. Way back in the day, we used to record this together at Jeff's place because we live like seven minutes from each other. We've actually been recording remotely now for a couple of years at least. And of course, we're obviously continuing to do that in this period of COVID-19. Enough teasers and everything else. Let's get into the meat of the episode. Let's take a look at Atari games, the arcade side. The ones who truly kept the torch of Atari, who took the will of Nolan Bushnell and brought it forth into a new age of glory in games. <laughs> Something like that. We do have to very briefly touch upon the circumstances around the creation of Atari games. And, of course, we talked about that in other episodes, so we won't linger on this. The company was called Atari Incorporated. This was the case until the end of June 1980 officially announced the very beginning of July, but kind of the negotiations were winding down at the end of June, when Jack Trammell bought the consumer and home computer divisions of Atari Incorporated. He took those pieces and rolled them into his company, Trammell Technologies, which then reincorporated as Atari Corporation. At that moment, Jack Trammell was given the right to the Atari name in a consumer context. And he was given the rights to all of the consumer products within the Atari apparatus. So the old VCS, by now the 2600, the 5200, the 7800 was more complicated because it was done by an outside contractor. All of this home stuff. He also had the rights to continue releasing the home versions of any old arcade properties. So... Obviously, Atari had converted all of its old games from Pong to Tank to Breakout to Asteroids to its console systems. Jack Trammell continued to have the rights to all of that stuff up through the middle of 1984. After that, if he wanted to convert any newer Atari product coming out, he'd have to license it just like anybody else. At that moment, because Jack Trammell was changing his company's name to Atari Corporation, Warner changed the name of Atari Incorporated to Atari Games. So that's when that Atari Games name dates from, is the middle of 1984. At the very beginning, the executive apparatus was technically all still attached to Atari Games. So James Morgan, the CEO, John Farron, the president of Atari Inc., were technically all at Atari Games. But that top level of management disappeared very quickly. Atari Games continued to run for that half year of 1984 as a subsidiary of Warner, the Atari coin-op management, the VPs of engineering and sales and marketing, and all of that were all the same people that had been running that stuff in the coin-op division before the break. They also retained the big Atari Ireland factory in Tipperary, Ireland, 
which was a major manufacturer of coin-operated games for the European market, not just Atari product, but they would also subcontract and manufacture other people's product for the European market as well. That big factory stayed with them. So it was basically business as usual at the coin-operated games division. Warner wasn't really going to stay in that business. I mean, Warner was getting out of everything. They knew Tremel wasn't going to want coin-op. They approached Tremel to buy the other stuff because they knew Tremel was a big computer guy. He'd just recently been ousted from Commodore. They figured he'd be interested in that. They had tried to sell it to other major corporations like Philips in the Netherlands first. That failed, so they turned to Tremel. They knew he wasn't going to take the coin-op stuff, so they just pawned off the rest on him. But they were never really planning to continue in the video game business. They were fighting for their life. There was a hostile takeover attempt. Atari's failures were dragging the stock price down like crazy. And as we talked about, the arcade industry was in a slump, too. This was not the great video game crash, which was really a consumer phenomenon, but the coin-op industry was having its own cyclical downturn. By 1984, that downturn was just pretty much hitting bottom. It was a little ahead of the consumer business, but it was still a bad business. It was still going to drag things down. They knew that they'd be getting rid of that as well. Meanwhile, over in Japan, you had Namco. Of course, we had a, we did an entire episode on Namco, where Masaya Nakamura, the founder, CEO, president, was very forward-thinking, very ambitious, and had been eyeing for many, many years having a true global Namco coin-op empire. Namco, of course, had a long history with Atari going way back. They bought the Atari Japan division from Atari in the mid-70s when Atari was having its problems. That continued as a division of Namco after that. I'm sure we've mentioned that before, but that's one thing that may not necessarily be clear from reading some sources. It's not just that Namco bought the rights to do all the Atari stuff in Japan and bought the infrastructure or whatnot. Atari Japan continued to run as a subsidiary of Namco. It was its own thing that was doing this uh, distribution of Atari product in Japan. That company continued to be led by its general manager before the buyout, Hideyuki Nakajima, who we've talked about before because we did Namco stuff, who had come out of the paper industry, paper manufacturing industry, was very entrepreneurial, very independent spirit, which is generally considered unusual in Japan. Obviously, Japan has small business owners and entrepreneurs just like anywhere else, but it's a country where the idea of being a salary man at a big corporation is seen as the height of success as opposed to being entrepreneurial or a small business owner. He left to be the general manager of Atari Japan. There was a president when he got there, so he wasn't originally in charge of the whole thing. When it became a disaster, the president quit, and Nakajima became the de facto head of it. He was still there when Namco bought it. He was going to leave at that point. He was ready to kind of strike out on his own again. He didn't want to be part of a bigger company. I mean, it's different. I mean, you say, but he was already part of a big company. Well, Atari was way over in the United States, 3,000 miles away or whatever. So he had a lot of independence in his day-to-day operations at Atari Japan. But now he's going to be part of Namco in Japan. Masaya Nakamura is right there with him. So he wasn't going to have the same degree of freedom or ownership of that company. So he was going to leave... Nakamura basically bribed him into staying by allowing him free reign to go do stuff internationally. So he played a role in the international expansion of the company, and in 1978, 
he became the president of the newly established Namco America in Sunnyvale, California, which was quite coincidentally right across the street from where Atari had started, I believe. I mean, it was in Sunnyvale. It was just in the same area. Nakajima was head of Namco America, which at this time was strictly a licensing organization. They were licensing those hit games like Pac-Man to other companies like Midway to actually manufacture and release in the arcades. That's obviously been very successful for them. Games like Pac-Man and Ms. Pac-Man have been huge hits. Now, I know they didn't create Ms. Pac-Man. I'm aware of that. But they still got to collect royalties on that because Pac-Man was still their character. So they had some big hits. That was going well. And Masaya Nakamura was ready to take that next step. Even though the U.S. market was falling apart, this was a period where in Japan, Namco was having some of its greatest success. Pac-Man was always bigger in the United States than it was in Japan. Not that it didn't do well in Japan, it did. Pac-Mania was way more of an American phenomenon than a Japanese phenomenon. But at this point in Japan, Xevious is coming out, which is a big hit. Then in 1984, Pac-Land and Tower of Draga come out, which are big hits. So the company is reaching an apex at home. It's about to embark on Famicom game creation, which really takes its profits at home into the stratosphere. Masaya Nakamura decides it's time. It is time to take that big leap and really establish a U.S. presence that is not just a licensing organization, but is a full factory, full R&D, full everything. And what better way to do that than to take over the company that literally helped him get his start in the video game industry about a decade before, Atari. So on January 10th, 1985, Negotiations go on late 1984. January 10th, 1985, Namco files Articles of Incorporation for a new company, AT Games Incorporated, which becomes a subsidiary, I believe, of Namco America, the already existing American entity. AT Games, obviously, AT short for Atari, is a new holding company. That then, the next month, February 4th, after negotiations have completely finished, ends up purchasing all the assets and intellectual property rights of Atari Games from Warner Communications for $10 million and change. Those assets then become part of AT Games Inc., which is a wholly owned subsidiary of Namco America. That's a few steps of holding companies and subsidiaries and whatnot. But effectively what happens is that Atari Games becomes part of Namco. Namco buys the entirety of the Atari Games assets, which ceases to exist. Warner then invests in the new AT Games holding company and acquires 40% of the company from Namco America. So the Warner people are savvy enough to realize that video games are probably going to come back. Not everyone was savvy enough to do that. A lot of people, you know, doom and gloom, this is the end, it was a fad. But Warner was savvy enough to know that video games might come back later. They just couldn't wait for it to happen because of all the problems they were having in the depressed stock price and all of that. So they wanted to still have a piece of it, and they wanted to put themselves in a position that maybe someday they could take more than a piece of it if, market conditions were more favorable. 
So they invest 40% in the company. So it's a 60-40 split. Namco America owns 60% of Atari games. Warner owns 40% of Atari games. Masaya Nakamura, as the chairman of Namco, becomes the chairman of Atari games. Atari games basically becomes a part of Namco America from a management perspective, which means that Hideyuki Nakajima, who we previously talked about, who is already the president of Namco America, also becomes the president of Atari games. He's going to be the guy running the show now. But at the VP level, like I said, nothing changes. There is basically complete continuity at the VP level at the company. The only exception is that Dennis Wood, who was hired a couple of years previously to be executive vice president and general counsel for Namco of America, is going to serve those same roles at Atari Games. He's kind of Nakajima's right-hand man, and Nakajima's Japanese. Wood is American and knows the American legal system and American business, so he's kind of the main counselor of Nakajima. He kind of takes on a similar role at Atari Games. But other than that, everything pretty much stays the same. Dave Stubbin, who has been at Atari since the mid-'70s and who was a key contributor to Atari football, for one, which was a big hit, continues on as the Senior Vice President of Engineering. Lyle Raines, who we've talked about many times before, who had a hand in most of Atari's big hits from the 70s, from Tank to Asteroids, and has risen to higher and higher tiers of management within the company, remains VP of Creative Development. Dan Van Elderen, who literally started on the assembly line at Atari in 1973. This guy, spoiler alert, becomes the longest-running employee of the company because he started on the assembly line in 73, moved in to be a technician, then into engineering, then a management role in engineering, and eventually becomes president of the whole thing. So when I say that Atari Games, unlike Atari Corporation, has continuity throughout the history of Atari, it really, really does. Because Van Elderen starts on the assembly line and ends up running the whole darn thing (laughs) by the time it's through. He's still there in a senior engineering role. The VP of sales, Shane Brakes, an Englishman who uh, unfortunately just died a couple of years back, he continued on as VP of sales. Mary Fujihara, who had come up through the coin-operated industry's first market research group that was established at Atari Coin-Op by Carol Cantor back in 1976. She rose from being one of Carol Cantor's hires in market research to become marketing director for the whole Coin-Op thing. She continues to be the director of marketing. So all of this stuff is the same. And the Atari Ireland plant that I talked about a minute ago also comes over as part of this. So Namco not only gains a massive American subsidiary, they also gain massive European manufacturing capability overnight. Namco becomes a global coin-operated game empire under the control of Nakamura and Nakajima, and the Atari people get to keep doing what they've been doing all along in all of their same positions, which is making and selling great coin-operated video game product. All right, so there we go. That's Atari Games. That's the setup for this brand new company that comes into being in 1985, rising out of the ashes of the old. And if you want more information on Namco, I will, of course, throw a link to our episode covering the history of Namco into the show notes. Absolutely. What is Atari doing during this time period in this coin-operated market? Of course, we've talked before about the coin-op industry downturn. We talked about it some in our crash episode. 
We also did an episode dedicated to video game companies in the aftermath of that downturn and how they were dealing with it. Listeners of that episode, which of course we'll also put in the show notes, may remember that a lot of the industry turned to kits in order to just provide a circuit board and some new side panels, some new cabinet art, and replace a game in an already existing cabinet. It was cheap and easy for operators then to replace their lineup of games, which were now worthless because of the downturn. Atari doesn't really go that route. I mean, they they do some stuff that kits out, but their main goal was to continue to be the leader in innovation in the industry because that's what they really saw themselves as. These are the people that created the coin-operated video game industry, and it's not an exaggeration to say that. They weren't quite first because Nolan Bushnell did computer space through nutting, but Pong was really the start of it, even as some of the Japanese product like Space Invaders and Pac-Man took a lot of the limelight away from them. This was the company that started it all. They always felt that they were major innovators and that that was their place in the industry. So they weren't just going to go and do cheap kits. They basically took two tracks that intersect a little bit, but two primary ways of taking this thing forward. First of all, Atari was always known for its unique control setups, whether it's the dual joystick control of tank all the way back in 1974, or the lever that you used on Lunar Lander that you pushed forward and had a spring that gave it resistance, the trackball, which they didn't invent or even use for the first time in video games, but some of their games like Football and Missile Command became synonymous with the trackball. Tempest, another hit, had a unique controller. So they were always known as a company that was doing interesting control schemes. And this was definitely a contrast to Japan because, of course, in Japan, a lot of things were homogenized even earlier than the United States, because when they were doing tabletop cabinets, you kind of needed all of your games to fit in a standard form factor, so you didn't necessarily have a lot of room to innovate in control schemes. Now, as the 80s go on, Sega's going to take innovation in control schemes and run with it with full motion cabinets like they used in Hang On and Outrun. But in this period of time, the Japanese product that was a big hit, like Space Invaders and Pac-Man, were just using very simple joysticks and buttons. That was one way that Atari stood out from the competition. The other thing that they decided to do is that they were going to do system hardware. We talked about this in other contexts before. In the early days of the industry, I'm talking about the 70s and the early 1980s, straight through the golden age, you created bespoke hardware for the game you had in mind. Even after microprocessors meant that you could move a lot of the burden to software, even when it wasn't TTL circuits driving every aspect of a game, you still created a custom hardware for every big release that you did. And then you would usually do some follow-up releases, sometimes sequels, sometimes just similar games that used the same hardware because you want to make sure you use up all the boards and you get the maximum amount of life out of that. But the idea was every game was its own special little perfect snowflake, and you wanted that perfect little snowflake to have its perfect little arcade board to go with it. System hardware had been tried a few times before, sometimes to great success. We've talked about how Dave Nutting Associates basically pioneered the idea in the mid-70s with the hardware that powered Seawolf and Boot Hill and all of the microprocessor-driven games that they were doing in that period of time. 
Atari gets into it right in this period, about 1984. They create a standardized piece of hardware that is aptly enough called the System 1. Which presumably will eventually lead to the System 2. Spoilers, Jeff. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> System 1 was based around a Motorola 16-bit processor, actually their 68010 processor, which was kind of a hybrid 16-bit, 32-bit processor. So it was based around what at the time was the latest Motorola processor, at a time when Motorola was still considered the king of 16-bit processors. It's so easy now with the the Wintel Alliance having been so successful for so long to kind of think that Intel was always dominant in microprocessors. They invented the darn thing, didn't they? And they're still what we use in all of our PCs today, right? Nope. Well, you know, there was more competition back then. And in this period of time, Motorola was definitely the company considered to have the newest, hottest 1632-bit processors around. That changes. Later in the 80s, Motorola falls behind. And Intel, with first the 386 and especially the 486, just rockets completely ahead of Motorola and leaves them in the dust. But in this period, that Motorola processor is top of the line. That 68010, great 16-bit processor with some 32-bit capability. The System 1 also has a separate sound processor, a 6502, old reliable 8-bit standby, just to run the sound. And it has display hardware that can display graphics at what at the time was considered standard resolution, which was 336 by 240. Today, we would call that a low-res system. At the time, that was pretty much standard in the raster scan video game industry. That's part of the reason that vector graphics were such a big deal, because they could be at a higher resolution. So it had a good standard resolution, nothing fancy, 256 colors from a palette of 1024, which again was a lot of color for that period of time. And then what they did to systematize it is that it actually allowed then for the acceptance of a separate cartridge board. So that cartridge board was where you would do the ROM of your individual game. So that allowed the hardware to be modular. So it wasn't just that it was a system that they planned to create multiple games internally on. It would also theoretically allow them to swap out games in the field if one game is no longer so successful anymore, then you can retrofit those with another cartridge ROM, and uh, in most cases it, it should work pretty well. So this was a true system hardware all the way around. It's not quite kitting out though it would allow them to release kits in the future to go into existing hardware. But the idea is we're going to have a standard platform that we can release everything on. On the side, we will also continue to do special control schemes. Even Atari System 1 games could have special control schemes as part of them as well, which, again, would make them less interchangeable in the field, but it meant that they could keep that unique factor going even as they streamlined uh, the creation of these games. So System 1 debuts in 1984 on the game Marble Madness. Marble Madness is technically slightly before the time we're covering here. It's released in that break period between everything breaking apart and Namco buying the company. But Marble Madness is a game that we've talked about a little bit in the past. It was briefly very successful, but it was a very short game. And 
once people kind of got through all the levels very quickly, it, it kind of petered out. So Marble Madness is remembered fondly by a lot of people today, but in terms of its earning potential, it kind of had a great burst of activity and then fell off a cliff after that. But that was the beginning of the System 1 hardware. It also had a trackball. So again, it was about having a special control scheme. Initially, it was supposed to be even more special because he wanted to do a trackball with momentum because the marble is rushing down a slope. And so the idea was that the trackball was essentially your marble. So as that marble is rolling down a slope faster and faster out of control, you would actually have to fight the trackball, which would be moving just like the marble's moving. That would be a challenge. (laughs) Yeah, it ended up being too complex and not very fun. So they took all that out. I can just think of just how easy it would be for that control scheme to just break down. If you have motors in there with rubber wheels that are fighting the user, you're going to run through those rubber wheels, especially with how some users could probably use it <laughs> really, really quickly. Yeah. And that's just prone to breaking because you have intentional friction there. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. That thing's going to be on service practically every month, if not more <laughs> often. Probably, probably, probably. You know, Marble Madness is kind of the first game that represents this new direction of Atari games, even though it's before the Namco buyout. Standardize the hardware, but still get some special control schemes and unique gameplay in there to remind people that Atari is the company that started this whole thing and is the company that's going to be here long after everyone else is gone. Spoiler alert, obviously they're not, but that's, you know, the logic in moving forward. There's also at the very beginning of the period here a big burst of licensed product. And this was a holdover from the old Atari days, because as media companies in 1983 really began to pay attention to this video game craze, some of these media companies started their own video game divisions like 20th Century Fox and CBS. Others weren't starting their own divisions, but they were doing licensing of product. And Atari got very, very involved in licensing of product. A few of those products ended up being released before the crash. Many more were started at Atari Consumer in the home division and just never saw the light of day because the market fell apart. They were doing the same thing in Coinop, but because of the lead time with Coinop games versus consumer games, Coinop games being much more complicated, you didn't see many of those games coming out before the split. The most notable example, of course, is the classic Star Wars arcade game because they did make a deal with Lucasfilm. In this very early period, you see more of that kind of thing. They were working on games that could be Laserdisc properties. They did release one Laserdisc game, you know, before the collapse, Firefox, which was based on a Clint Eastwood movie. But they were also looking at doing more things. They were looking at doing a Roadrunner game, a Looney Tunes game featuring Roadrunner and Wile E. Coyote, where you would do things and then a short snippet from one of the cartoons would play to show the results of your actions. They also decided that Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, which was just coming out, Raiders was a bit old to try to do something with at this point. Of course, they tried to do something in the home, and that didn't go very well. But in the arcade, Raiders was a bit long in the tooth, but Temple of Doom was just coming out, so they were going to do a Temple of Doom Laserdisc game. Neither of those ended up happening. The whole Laserdisc thing collapsed. It ended up not being fun. But they did still have those properties, and they did still decide to release games on them. So in 1985, there was both a Roadrunner and an Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom game that came out from the company. They were standard raster games. They weren't Laserdisc, standard computer graphics and all of that. So you had those two games coming out. They also did do a kit for Star Wars. As I said, 
Atari games didn't really want to get involved with kitting out. But, you know, they had sold thousands of those Star Wars games. Uh, I think the final production figure was something like 12,000. They wanted to be able to recoup something from that. So they actually did an Empire Strikes Back as a kit. They didn't even release it as its own cabinet, I don't believe. It was solely a kit that could be put into those existing Star Wars units. They were done with vector graphics. The whole vector graphics thing had kind of fallen off a cliff. But they figured that there were enough Star Wars units out in the field that they could make some money on a kit to convert that. So that Empire Strikes Back game was technically their last vector graphics game, though it was really just kind of a quick and dirty throwaway, just change some stuff so you're doing Empire Strikes Back things like fighting walkers and dodging asteroids instead of blowing up Death Stars like you did in Star Wars. So you see some of that kind of stuff happening in the transition as well. The license stuff peters out pretty quickly after that for the most part, but that's kind of holdover from the Warner days. The big thing that they start doing, though, is using their system hardware and combining unique control schemes with brand new gameplay. Marble Madness was an early example of that. The first example that really comes out during the Atari games regime is another beloved game that we've talked about on the show here before, Paperboy. Paperboy had a long gestation period, so it actually started way back in 1982, early 1983. It grew out of John Salwitz and Dave Ralston, the designers of it, artist and designer, interest in the new Sega games Axon, which was a scrolling shooter, and it was the first isometric shooter, shown from that diagonal isometric perspective to give a kind of faux 3D effect instead of being an overhead vertical shooter or a side view horizontal shooter. They were really impressed with that. They wanted to do something similar, but of course they didn't just want to copy because Atari is a company that prides itself on not copying other people's concepts. They'd been, at least one of them, maybe both of them, had been paperboys as kids, and so they thought that that would work very well together to do to change the theme to delivering papers to houses instead. They came up with a funky handlebar control scheme to use with it, Ended up actually not doing it on the System 1 hardware, but doing it on, yes, the System 2 hardware that you said must be coming if there's a System 1. By this time, they had decided to basically do a medium resolution version of their System hardware. So System 1 and System 2 actually overlapped each other. One did not fully replace the other. Both of them were used throughout the mid-1980s. The main difference, there were a couple others as well, but the main difference was that System 2 could do so-called kind of medium-resolution graphics, which in this case meant 512 by 384. So you're not to the point yet where you can get that same level of resolution as you could on a vector system. You're not even to what became the good old high-resolution standard for so long of 800 by 600, but it's a good sight better than 336 by 240. So Paperboy ends up coming out in this high-for-the-time resolution system. It had a kind of tortured development process. At first, they decided to get weird with it. They had, like, ducks in business suits and Grim Reapers and all of these weird things trying to stop you from delivering the papers. That focus tested poorly. Their marketing manager, Don Traeger, who went on to have a very uh, influential career at Electronic Arts, was like, let's get back to basics and make some realistic obstacles, huh, guys? Kind of that combination of those detailed, high-resolution-for-the-time graphics, 
that interesting handlebar control scheme and target shooting the newspapers, avoiding the obstacles, became a pretty big uh, hit for the company in 1985, became an even bigger hit when it was converted to home systems. And I know that's one you're very familiar with because I remember you having Paperboy. I did on the NES. Absolutely. That was one of the things that they did in 85. The real hit and one of the games that helped revive the entire industry was the game Gauntlet. I'm sure you're familiar with Gauntlet. Oh, yes. Warrior needs food badly. Warrior is about to die. I have lost my warrior. Go forth, new Valkyrie! (laughs) Absolutely. Pretty much the epitome of smashing everything. It's the medieval version of just shoot everything. It was smash TV before smash TV. Absolutely. And you know why that warrior died. Because even though he needed food... That fast elf came and ate all the food before him. Stupid elf. That's why we hit it with an axe. (laughs) Gauntlet actually has an interesting history. The game was created by Ed Logg, who is famous for asteroids, famous for doing a lot of the design and programming on Centipede, one of the true luminaries of the American coin-op industry. He's the one that decided he wanted to do a D&D game because D&D was becoming increasingly popular in the early 1980s after that panic, after that rash of, oh, it's satanic and people are killing themselves because they're playing the game and all the protests against it made it ridiculously popular because that's what happens with that kind of stuff. As long as your product isn't actually killing people, when somebody says that your product is killing people, that spreads awareness of it in, in a way like you wouldn't believe and then people start buying it. It really is true in a lot of cases that all publicity is good publicity. D&D is getting more popular. Ed Logg's son is a big fan of D&D. His son's bugging him to say, you know, you should make a D&D arcade game. Ed Logg's like, okay, I can do that. He actually copied a lot of the gameplay, not all of it, but a lot of it from an obscure computer game, Atari 8-bit game called Dandy. So we need to take a second to talk about Dandy here first. Dandy was the creation of a guy by the name of Jack Palovich, who was a student at MIT. He needed a thesis topic, and he was a big gamer going way back, and he was into personal computers and all of that stuff. He almost actually created an Atari 800 emulator on a big machine at MIT, at one of their big list machines. But the thesis advisor thought that was kind of ridiculous because the whole point of emulation is to save money. And so having a $100,000 machine emulate an $800 machine didn't seem to make much sense. But he was very keen on taking concepts within the mainframe world, institutional computing world that he was exposed to at MIT, and converting them over into experiences on home computers. He actually came across the very important early game, Maze War, which had migrated to MIT from the West Coast. It had been created at NASA Ames on an MLAX computer, which had a three-dimensional display back even in the early 1970s. It migrated from there to Xerox Park, the pioneering research facility that pioneered a lot of stuff relating to both GUI interfaces and WYSIWYG word processors. From there, one of the people working at Xerox came to MIT and came to their AI lab, what was called the Laboratory of Computer Science at that time, but it had started as the AI lab, 
then it's spread amongst that group. We talked about that a little bit in the context of Infocom not too long ago. So Palovich, also being at MIT, was exposed to that and decided it would be fun to recreate this 3D shooting game, Maze War, where you're running around in a maze shooting at other people. It was actually a multiplayer, networked, first-person shooter way before Doom, but of course it was a first-person shooter that virtually nobody could play and couldn't be commercialized. He decided he'd translate that to the Atari 800. Well, it turns out that the 3D stuff just wasn't going to work on an Atari 800. He had to modify it to a a 2D display. So he decided to make this kind of dungeon game where you're running around a maze shooting at things. There wasn't much sophistication to it at this point. Rogue, of course, already existed, and there were roguelikes starting to permeate, but he never saw any of those. So there was none of the fancy different monsters with different attributes and all of this kind of stuff that you come to associate with that. This was a pure action game. The monsters were very simplistic. Basically, there were just hordes of things that charged at you. No real AI, no ranged attacks or anything, just monsters charge at you. That was kind of working for him, but it really wasn't difficult enough. I mean, I suppose you could put 50 million things on the screen, but at some point the game just stops to function. Just having a finite group of monsters that you pew-pew that don't have ranged attacks and just charge at you, turns out there's not that much to that. So he was inspired by the game of life, which is something that we've talked about many times before on here as well, to have randomly generated monsters start occupying squares in the same way that in life you start with a setup of pre-existing cells and then they start to propagate based on the rules of the game. Though rather than cells, this is how he came up with the idea of having monster spawners. Gauntlet was more sophisticated than Dandy. It's not just a ripoff. There's a lot more with items. There's monsters with different attack capabilities, including ranged attack abilities, which Dandy didn't have. There's a lot more sophistication in Gauntlet. Ed Log was also the one that had the brilliant idea of, if this is like a D&D setup, there should be a dungeon master that is overseeing this, quote, D&D game. And that's how they came up with the idea to have this omnipresent voice saying things like, Elf needs food badly. The idea was that was the quote-unquote dungeon master that was shouting out stuff that was going on within the game, just as a real dungeon master would do around the D&D table. So that was an Edlog creation. Secrets, varied enemies, all of that stuff that really made it interesting was Edlog's creation. But the basic idea of you're running through a maze, shooting at monsters, and these monsters are spawning from set monster spawners, He took all of that from this Dandy game that started as a conversion of Maze War and turned into something else entirely. Dandy was published to the Atari Program Exchange, which was kind of an indie development kind of thing. Atari would solicit programs from people and they would run contests and award prizes. Then the games and utilities and other software programs that were submitted were all put together in a catalog called the Atari Program Exchange, or Apex for short then people could order stuff out of that catalog. So it wasn't officially published Atari product, you know, in an Atari box with an Atari logo and stuff, but it was stuff that Atari sold as, you know, kind of indie development kind of sideline thing. So Dandy was released through the APX, so Edlog was aware of it because it had come through Atari, took this basic thing, adapted it, created Gauntlet, He decided all along it was going to be four players. Dandy was massively multiplayer, what you would call massively multiplayer at the time. 
not what you'd call massively multiplayer today, but it was massively multiplayer. It had like four or five players could play at the same time. So Gauntlet was designed to have four players. It wasn't the very first game in the arcade that allowed for more than two players to play together. There had been even the massively multiplayer Tank 8 and Indy 800 games that Atari did that allowed eight players to crowd around a cabinet. The thing that was very important for Ed Logg is he knew from those earlier games that there was nothing worse than waiting for a game to finish. Because in a game like Tank 8, which was competitive, not cooperative, all the players that want to play, you know, have a certain window to put their coins in. Then the game starts and the game runs until it's finished. Even if only three people are on the cabinet, if you think, oh, that's cool, I want to play too, you have to wait till that game's over to join in. Ed Logg's real brainstorm here was we should let players buy in at any time. So you and your buddy start playing on two of the players together. Somebody else walks by and it's like, oh, that looks cool. You're pew-pewing things I want to join. Well, go right ahead, insert your coin. Step right up, start right where the other guys are. You know, within seconds, you're pew-pewing things right along with your friends. I'm not sure that it was the first game. I don't know if there was a two-player game that did that before Gauntlet. I've never done the research. There were very few cooperative games in the early days. So I don't know if it's the very first if a two-player game did it before that, but certainly a four-player game, it was the first one that allowed that. He very simply decided that what you would buy is you would buy health, and again, this was a D&D thing, because D&D has hit points, so he decided that this game would have food and that the food would essentially represent health. It decreases automatically throughout the game because it's a coin-op game. You have to get people off the game eventually, but of course you also lose more as you get hit by things. And then you can load up on food by inserting coins. And the more coins you insert, the more hit points you have. So that's another D&D mechanic that's brought in. Well, this is brilliant now because you have a game that's four players. So that's potentially four times the coin drop. You have a game where people can drop in and out whenever they want. Two people playing together, even a single player playing alone, serves as a perfect attract mode in the arcade for other people to come in join in right next to you, and start playing right along with you. That's great. And then it has another great coin suck in the sense that you can insert more coins to get more hit points, to get more energy. That's another thing that just really emphasizes spending. I also would think that it would also incentivize spending in a way of, I can be me and my brother are playing. I'm the older brother, he's the younger brother. He just died because he's less apt at playing the game. I can be, Mm -hmm. okay. There's the coin machine over there. Here's five bucks. Go get more coin machines while I'll keep us at this spot long enough. Get back here as quickly as they can. So the kid just runs off, gets the quarters, comes back, throws one into your slot, throws one into his slot, and you're back at it. Absolutely. It's the beginning of a new paradigm in coin-operated games. Like I said, it may not have been the very first, but the entirety of the 1980s refocuses around this idea of multiple players gathering around the machine, give them lots of levels, give them stuff to progress through rather than just an endless challenge on a single screen, because Gauntlet has tons and tons and tons of levels. Allow people to buy in at any time so people come and go and just keep this machine churning constantly. I mean, this is the same logic behind all the beat-em-ups from Double Dragon to Final Fight to Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles this entire idea as an economic force really starts with Gauntlet. 
So that's a big game in Atari history. It's a big game in coin-op history. It's a big part of what brings arcades back in the United States after that downturn. It really comes down to that Atari belief that you should create a good hardware base and then come up with some unique control scheme and unique gameplay on top of it. Gauntlet is a modified version of the system hardware. The basic system one and two hardwares can't support four players. So they had to do a different PCB to do that game, but it was based off of the System 1 hardware, just slightly different. I mean, it wasn't a one-for-one kind of conversion. So that's 1985, and Gauntlet is the big news of 1985. Where does the company go from there? They go a couple of different directions. One of the things that they really do over the next couple of years is they really look at refreshing some of their old properties for the new arcade. Atari has a huge backlog of product. All of that coin-operated product going all the way back to the beginning is theirs. They kept that when the Atari uh, Corporation stuff was sold off to Jack Trammell. So a couple of their next big hits is racing games are always big. Racing games are still big. So they look at their past history with racing games and are like, how can we bring these forward into a new era? That really brings about three of the biggest hits that they have in this 1980s period. We'll hit those three one at a time here real fast. Super Sprint was an update on Atari's oldest driving game series. So we, of course, talked about the early Atari driving games, but the very first driving game that Atari did was Grand Track 10. As we talked about, we did a whole driving games episode in addition to the Atari stuff where we talked about different kind of driving games. The Atari paradigm in the 1970s of driving game was a single screen, later on multi-screen, but at the start single screen, overhead view racetrack where you have lots of twists and turns. It's very bendy. So you're moving around this convoluted track There's usually some oil slicks on there, so there's some light obstacles. There's not many. It's mostly about just taking all of those turns. It's steering wheel controlled. There's a gear shift. There's a pedal. The steering wheel, unlike a regular steering wheel that if you turn it all the way in one direction, it'll eventually stop because, of course, the wheels can't go any further in a real car. They always use steering wheels where you could spin them endlessly in one direction if you wanted. So that series of games, starting with Grand Track 10 and really peaking with Sprint in 1976 and its follow-ups, involved spinning your wheel rapidly, drifting around corners, and doing this whole curvy racetrack thing. So they decided that they would update that for the 1980s. They would do it in full color because the Sprint games, this was still in the black and white period. So it's something they could do in full color. They could do it on their System 2 hardware so they could have more detailed graphics. They also decided to uh, ditch the gear shift because this is now the mid-1980s. Automatic transmissions are pretty standard. Back in the 1970s when they did the original games, even though automatic transmissions were a thing, a lot of people still drove sticks. So the basic paradigm of driving a car is that you have to shift gears. Of course, in Racing cars, even today, I think you probably still have to shift gears. Well, I don't know about today. I don't follow racing. But, you know, in racing, they used manual transmissions even after automatic transmissions became a norm with just ordinary folk. But still, the ordinary person had the idea of gear shifting as being a big part of driving. So it made sense to have a gear shift in the earlier games. 
Well, now it just feels like something that slows down the gameplay. So they took out the gear shift. They updated the graphics massively. They added more obstacles and sometimes more whimsical obstacles, not just oil slicks, but things like tornadoes on the track and whatnot as well. And created a modern update with several twisty-turvy courses to the classic sprint format. So that was one of their big hits of the mid-1980s, because driving games have always been big in the arcade. That's always one of the big draws. That was Super Sprint in 1986. The other big game that Atari had done in terms of driving games was Pole Position. And yes, I know, Pole Position's a Namco game. I don't mean that they created it, but Pole Position was the American licensee of that game in the arcade when it came out in the U.S. in late 82 or early 83. It was a big hit for them, kind of one of the last games that hit really well as the market was starting to downturn. And, of course, they are still well associated with the pole position games in the mid-1980s because they're owned by Namco, which did those games. They decide to update pole position for the modern period, but they also decide to mix it with elements of the classic Spy Hunter game. Because I think at this point, Namco itself and Sega have really cornered the driving game market with games like Hang On and OutRun and Final Lap and all of that. So just doing a driving game wouldn't make much sense, especially since at this very same time, they are releasing all of Namco's product. Because that's the other thing we have to keep in mind, is that in addition to releasing their own original games, since they're part of this Namco apparatus, they are also releasing all of Namco's games that come across to the United States in North America. So they decide that they're going to take the pole position gameplay and that kind of close-in third-person view and forward scrolling and sprite scaling and all of that kind of good stuff, mix it with Spy Hunter, which was the classic midway overhead driving shooting game from 1983, to create this vehicular combat game called Road Blasters. Road Blasters comes out in 1987 and is another big hit for him, combining pole position style driving with Spy Hunter style combat. The third and final one of these driving games, and it's one we talked about before when we did our whole driving games episode, was the 1989 release Hard Driving, or rather Hard Drive N, because they cut off the G to be cool. But they replaced it with an apostrophe. They did. And to get it hard driving, we have to go back a little bit. So, as I said, Atari always considered itself to be kind of at the forefront of advances in coin-operated entertainment. By this time, the Japanese are doing some pretty impressive things as well, but this is a big part of Atari's identity. So, for most of this period of time, they had advanced R&D unit that was created within Atari coin-op. Obviously, Atari had other advanced R&D units like the Cyan Engineering in Grass Valley, but I mean a group specifically within the coin-op division, not within the wider Atari Incorporated, was a group called Support Research that was started by Rick Moncrief in about 1977 or 1978. Support Research was initially created to put the finishing touches on Atari's own vector scan graphic system after Cinematronics Space Wars became such a big success. So their first job was doing advanced vector work, and then they worked throughout the late 70s and early 1980s to continue improving that vector technology, making it more sophisticated, adding color, 
all of this good kind of thing. At the same time, Atari actually, and this is not Atari Coinop, but Atari Incorporated, the bigger company, established an R&D division in Cambridge, Massachusetts, home of MIT, called the Atari Cambridge Research Lab. And that group naturally attracted a lot of people that were orbiting MIT. So one of the big things that that group started working with was force feedback controls, force feedback joysticks, steering wheels, etc., because Marvin Minsky at MIT had been working on that stuff. That kind of was permeating the Cambridge intellectual scene, and so it permeated the Atari lab there. So you have this advanced graphics R&D group with an Atari coin-op. You have this R&D lab in Cambridge, Massachusetts that's doing force feedback. After Atari splits up, breaks apart, collapses, the Cambridge lab is closed. But some of the people that were in that lab relocate to California to be part of Atari games. So Rick Moncrief started a new group. He was kind of sick of being a manager. He wanted to get back to building stuff. So he wanted to do something that was more scaled down than his support research group. So he started a new smaller organization called Applied Research that was him and a couple of people from Cambridge and a couple of new hires that were all brought together to develop a driving simulator. And not necessarily a driving coin-op game, but like a full-fledged simulator that you could even use for training and that kind of stuff. So they started work on a force feedback system, and they started work on physics. They weren't originally going to do any graphics work because there were other groups within Atari coin-op that had been working with polygonal graphics. Of course, iRobot had been released in early 1984 by Atari before the collapse, which was a polygonal game. So at first, they weren't going to do anything with graphics, but it was taking so long to get a good polygonal system in place that their group started working on a polygonal engine as well. So they're putting together all of this driving stuff, the physics, the polygonal graphics, the force feedback controls. They're really serious about using this as a driving simulator. They can't quite get it realistic enough for that at this point. The hardware is still a little too limited to make it that realistic. Nobody's really interested in using this as a driving simulator. Driving schools and whatnot aren't. But, of course, it still makes for a very good game system. So this is in development for years. Finally comes out in 1989 as hard driving. And as we talked about in our driving game episode, this is really a paradigm shift in video game design. I mean. Polygonal graphics were the future. I mean, everyone knew that. It's not like somebody else wouldn't have come along and done it if Atari hadn't. But hard driving really represents the beginning of the transition to polygonal graphics in the arcade, in the coin-op space. It's one of these things you hear about, but you never hear about directly from sources. It's probable that Namco got its know-how to create games like Ridge Racer from the Atari work. Because, of course, during part of this period... They owned Atari Games, so of course they were privy to everything going on at Atari Games, including the polygonal research. And it's very likely that that simulation work that Atari Games was doing then formed the basis for what Namco was doing. So hugely influential product there that we also talked about in our driving game episode. So those are three of the big hits of the period. They also keep up with this thing of doing unique control schemes. They do a a skating game 
skateboarding game called 720 Degrees. In the mid-1980s, skateboarding is becoming more and more popular nationwide. You see several games featuring skateboards kind of coming out all right on top of each other. 720 Degrees is the first in 1986. You get Skate or Die from Electronic Arts and California Games from Epics in 1987, which have skateboarding in them. And they do a unique controller for that one as well. We'll try to put that up in the show notes. It's this weird thing in a bowl that you can use to spin your skater around and control tricks. It's an isometric view game. We'll put all of that in the show notes. That's another one that does well for them. Of all things, in 1988, they do a truly unique game called Tubin, which started out as being another one of these crazy control games, but then turned into something completely different. Basically, there was a guy at the company named Dennis Harper who was interested in kayaking. So he decided he was going to make a kayaking arcade game, and he would have a custom controller that wasn't as long as an actual kayak paddle, but it was basically in the shape of a kayak paddle, and you would do the kayaking motion to kayak, and you would have to go through gates, do fancy maneuvers to get through gates, just like in uh, Olympic kayak competitions, that kind of thing, and just a, a full-on kayaking simulator. Well, it turned out to not be very fun. It never went over well with anybody. But they did so much work on the hardware and so much work on animating water really well that they decided that they should still do something involving some of those mechanics. They started brainstorming, and one person, uh, Harper doesn't remember who, just said, you know, a lot of people just like floating down the river. That's something that's uh, you know particularly big uh, near us in Missouri, where you just you get an inner tube, you get a cooler full of beer, And you just kind of have what they call float parties where you and a bunch of your friends all are sitting on your inner tubes or maybe in rafts and you just float down the river drinking beer and minding your own business. I've done that a few times. It actually is a lot more fun than it might sound. It's just sort of you relax there. You're out there. You're taking in nature. Mm -hmm. You're having the fresh air, the water. It's really great during the summer month. And then after you've done your rafting trip down the water. A lot of these camps have it set up so that they have a way to cart you back to where you started. So you get driven all the way back to where you started. Mm-hmm. And then you can spend time camping that night, do it again the next day, and then head home. You can make a weekend out of it. It's actually really fun and really enjoyable. If you ever get a chance to do that, I would highly suggest at least trying it once in your life. Grab your family and do it or uh, grab some friends and do it. Absolutely. They decided that they'd adapt kind of the basic gameplay, but have you floating down the river, and they'd keep the gates. You know, you have to have some objectives in a game, an arcade game. You can't just float down the river. So they kept the gates and making you move through gates. He also was very big on physics, so he made sure that the inner tubes were very bouncy and kind of had very realistic physics going on. Even just going through gates isn't really enough action for an arcade game. So they decided that the beer element, so to speak, within the game is that rather than drinking beer, because, you know, it's an arcade, it's not about drinking beer, that, that's bad, especially in the kid-friendly places, what you'd do is you'd have your beer cans and you'd have to throw them at enemies that show up on the maps, many of which get very ridiculous in some levels, dinosaurs and cavemen and all sorts of wacky stuff. So there'd be enemies that you had to throw cans at to get them out of your way. That was Tubin. I mean, it's a game that probably isn't as well-remembered today as some of their other games, but it was another one of their hits, and it just kind of goes to show how 
they have this unique kind of pipeline of development. It's a System 2 game, so it's again taking advantage of that standard hardware. It started from a point of let's do a special controller and do something with that, and then it moved from there to, well, we've gone this far, let's just do something really unique and fun, even if it's no longer using that same crazy controller anymore. And so you get another hit in Tubin. That kind of gives you an idea of the cross-section of what is going on at Atari Games in this 80s time period. And they have some good hits as the market comes back. And certainly make a lot of money for Namco. Absolutely. At least for part of this period. Because now we have to circle back to the corporate side of this. Because it turns out that this marriage of Namco and Atari is not a very good one or a very successful one. But we just talked about a whole bunch of really successful games. (laughs) Absolutely. But basically what happens here is you have two very ambitious, entrepreneurial, visionary leaders in Masaya Nakamura, founder, CEO, president of Namco, and Hideyuki Nakajima, president of Atari Games and president of Namco America. Both of them see their spheres, Namco overall for Nakamura, Atari Games for Nakajima, as big, powerful companies within the industry. Namco and Nakamura sees Atari Games as a subsidiary. Their job is to serve as a funnel for Namco product around the world. It's great that they're also making some of their own games. They're obviously not going to get rid of R&D, but their primary job is to be Namco in America. When it comes to Japan... Their primary job is to provide product for Namco's own owned and operated arcades in Japan. Because, of course, as we've talked about before in the Japanese coin-op industry, the manufacturers themselves, the big ones like Sega and Taito and Namco, are also distributors and operators. They operate their own arcades. Nakajima felt that Nakamura was not treating Atari product well in Japan. He felt that Nakamura was primarily using it to further Namco's interests, which didn't necessarily translate into Atari Games' interests. What I mean by that is that Nakamura would, of course, be tempted to make sure that the best games coming out of America were most prominently featured in Namco arcades in Japan. So let's say that there's a region where, like, Namco and Sega have arcades right across the street from each other. This is just all hypothetical. I'm not speaking to a real instance. Let's say Namco and Sega have arcades right across the street from each other. Let's say the Sega arcade actually outperforms, in terms of volume of foot traffic, total volume of coin drop, the Namco arcade across the street. From Atari Games' perspective, it would make more sense to put their newest and best games in that Sega arcade because that's how they're going to make their most money. From a Namco perspective, it's best to put the biggest and best games in the Namco arcade because maybe the coin drop isn't as big there. Maybe you don't sell as many units in there, but it's the new exciting game. Maybe that'll get some people to walk across the street and do our arcade instead of the Sega arcade. So for the overall corporate goals of Namco, that makes sense. But that kind of work frustrated Nakajima. Nakajima felt that Atari games were not doing as well in Japan as they could because they were always being used in a way that suited the parent company and not in a way that suited Atari. Nakamura, meanwhile, is like, who is this uppity so-and-so that thinks he should be running his own show and doing his own thing in America? You know, he answers to me at the end of the day. You need to do what I tell you. You're my subordinate. Exactly. 
So there was just a lot of butting of heads between the two. So they finally decided that they should part ways. And we talked about this, I think, in the Atari brand episode. We talked about how this split worked. At the beginning of 1987, Nakajima and a group of other Atari Games employees purchased one-third of Namco America's share of Atari Games. So remember that Namco owns 60% of the company. Warner owns 40% of the company. So purchasing about one-third of that 60% share means that they purchased about 20% of the total company. So now instead of a 60-40 split, you have a 40-40-20 split between the three companies, between Namco, Warner, and the independent Atari Games entity itself. So because there was no longer a controlling shareholder, because nobody had 51% of the company, that meant Atari Games at that point was basically independent. Even though they owned only a sliver of themselves, they were technically independent because nobody had enough of the stock to just say straight out, this is my company, you will do what I say. At this point, Nakajima resigns all of his positions from Namco. He was on their board of directors. He was an EVP in Japan. He was president of Namco America. He resigned all of his Namco positions so that he would solely be the head of Atari Games. Nakamura actually remained the chairman of Atari Games, the chairman of the board, until the middle of 1988. So for about a year and a half after Atari Games became independent, the head of Namco was still the chairman of the board at Atari Games. So it's not like they just broke up. Nakamura still had a big influence, and Atari continued to be the sole channel for releasing Namco games in the United States throughout the rest of the 1980s. It's just that now that the company was technically independent, Nakajima was freed to manage Atari product around the world in the way that he saw fit, and Nakamura no longer had to continually butt heads with a subordinate that was not acting like a subordinate. It was more a reconfiguration of their relationship rather than a breakup. They were allowed to see other people, but they weren't broken up. A quote-unquote open relationship? Exactly. They went from a committed uh, monogamous relationship to an open relationship. Atari's still bringing all the Namco product in. I'm sure Namco's still doing a lot of business with Atari product in Japan, but there's technical independence there under Nakajima. Of course, the other thing that this allows them to do is to enter the Nintendo market. In late 1987, December 21st, 1987, right at the end of the year, Atari Games establishes a new subsidiary to enter the console market. Now, they can't use the Atari name at all for this company because Jack Trammell's Atari Corporation has the complete rights to that name in the home. You can't have an Atari in the home unless it's Jack Trammell's Atari. They go back to the game of Go which is, of course, where the name Atari came from in the first place. And they pick another term from the game. The term they pick is the term for the center of the Go board. That region is called the Tengen, T-E-N-G-E-N. They choose the name Tengen for their new subsidiary to enter the home market. They poach a guy from the computer game company Strategic Simulations named Randy Broelite to head this new division, because, of course, all the people at Atari are coin-op people. They need someone with consumer experience, retail experience, to run the side of things. So they bring in Randy Browlite from SSI, and he heads this new division. The whole purpose of this division is to bring 
both Atari product and Namco product that Namco itself is not bringing to the United States because Namco at this point doesn't have any U.S. presence. I mean, they still have Namco America, but it's just a licensing organization. They're making Boku Bucks making product in Japan for the Famicom, but they're not doing anything in the United States except what they're doing through Atari. Tengen's going to bring Atari product and also some Namco product to the Nintendo Entertainment System. Nakajima, of course, knows Arakawa at Nintendo very well. Namco and Nintendo are very close partners already on the Famicom. It's pretty easy to get a license. Not only do they get a license, but Minoru Arakawa and Howard Lincoln at Nintendo of America really take Nakajima under their wing. They walk him through how retail works in the United States. They help get him introduced to retail distributors. They see their role very much as paternalistic. We've talked a little bit about Nintendo and their policies in other episodes. They exert a lot of control, what many people would rightly call an excessive amount of control. But then they also felt that they were the loving father that was treating all of their children very well and protecting them and educating them and helping them grow in life. So as long as you could stand Papa Nintendo telling you where you could go and who you could see and what you could make, they felt that you got a lot back in return for that. And they really did that for Nakajima and Atari Games and Tengen because there was already this strong relationship. Nakajima, however, as we talked about just a second ago with Namco, is not the kind of guy that likes somebody else telling him what he can or cannot do. I mean, this is basically the whole reason that he broke up with Namco and with Masaya Nakamura is because he doesn't want anyone telling him what to do. So Nakajima is not happy about the restrictions. He feels that he's got a great catalog of product. He's got all the old Atari product. He's got some old Namco product. He's got continuing Namco product that's coming out and continuing Atari product that's coming out that he can bring to the NES. He feels like they deserve special consideration. He says, you've got to let us release more games. You've got to let us manufacture our own product. You've got to let us be us because we are big and we are important and we deserve that. And Arakawa and Lincoln, of course, like, well, no, these are the rules. They were good about that. I mean, they kept to the rules. Like I've said before, everyone I talked to that ran a consumer division, and I've talked to Konami, Capcom, Taito, Acclaim, Jalco, Irem. I mean, I've talked to Data East. I've talked to at least one person that was at nearly every major NES publisher in the late 1980s. All of them said, yeah, it really is true. I mean, yes, you chafed at the restrictions. You didn't want the restrictions. Obviously, everyone would have preferred not to have to do what they did for Nintendo. But they all said that Nintendo ran their system fairly. They didn't do special privileges. As we've said before, well, then someone could bring up, well, why was Acclaim and Konami allowed to release more games by doing a second license? And it's like, well, yes, they let them do that. But there's no evidence that if another company had come to them and asked for the same thing, that they wouldn't have necessarily let them do that, too. I'm not sure that Atari Games ever thought to try to do something like that, to get a second license through a different subsidiary. So anyway, Tengen is not allowed to do its own thing, so they grudgingly decide they'll go with the program. They prepare three games for release in 1988. Gauntlet, which of course was a big hit a couple of years before that. Pac-Man, because there wasn't a version of Pac-Man available in the U.S. on the NES because Namco wasn't releasing product there. So even though that's an oldie, 
It's a classic, so they're going to release Pac-Man. And RBI Baseball. RBI Baseball was the American name for a Namco product. So that was a Namco arcade baseball game that then Atari released as RBI Baseball in arcades in the United States. Now they're releasing RBI Baseball for the NES. But as we talked about in other episodes, like our Tetris episode, they also secretly began reverse engineering the NES. That leads to anger and sadness for all. That's right, because basically they're unsuccessful. They tried to reverse engineer that lockout chip that stops non-licensed games from working. They fail, and so they break the law. They lie. They swear a false statement. They swear a false affidavit to the patent office saying that they are being sued by Nintendo, and in order to defend themselves from that suit, they need to see the original specifications of the lockout chip in order to defend themselves, because that's one of the exceptions where a trade secret is made available, where if someone is suing you and your defense rests on the fact that we couldn't have possibly copied you because our system is different, you have to be able to see the original system to mount your legal argument that your system is different. There was no Nintendo lawsuit, but they swore out an affidavit, which means they were under oath, under penalty of perjury, that they were subject of a suit, and so they got the specifications and they reverse engineered. That's how you get the big lawsuit. Nintendo goes after them. Lawsuits for everybody. Yes. Tengen tries to go ahead and release their own games. We did the Lawsuits for Everybody episode where we talked about this, so we won't go in depth here. Suffice it to say that Tengen is unsuccessful in selling its games most places because Nintendo is able to threaten retailers to get them to pull the games. Tengen games are basically only available through mail order. I know I remember back in the day that, you know, if I had a comic book or something else that had like the advertisement for one of those places where you could order, you know, hundreds of games from, you'd have the NES games and then you'd have the Tengen games in their own section. And I was like, why are these Tengen games in their own section if they're NES? I mean, I actually did think this at the time. I'm not just saying this in hindsight, knowing all the history. Back in the 1980s and early 1990s, I thought it was darn odd that every single Nintendo game was listed together, except then they separated out these Tengen games. And that's the reason why, because technically the Tengen stuff, they did not have the Nintendo seal of approval. They were not authorized by Nintendo. They could not be mixed in with the normal Nintendo product because it wasn't part of that family. Tengen goes along for a while. It goes on into the early 90s. They, of course, make a deal with Sega around uh, 1991 or so to release games on the Genesis because, of course, Sega is thrilled to have any third parties they can get, and it's logical that one of the third parties they'll get is the company that's on the outs with Nintendo. <laughs> mm-hmm. That Tengen subsidiary goes on till about 1993 or so. They're never very successful on the NES. They have a few games on the Genesis, but none of them are all of that big of hits. You know, it's kind of an interesting side story. Of course, they also try to get Tetris. We won't go into detail on that, but they get the coin-op rights for Tetris, and then they try to go into the home with Tetris as well, because then they think that they get the console rights as well, but we won't go into that mess because it's a mess. We did already. And we did already. After they're unable to do the Tetris thing, though, they do do a couple of puzzle games that do kind of well in 1989 and 1990. In 1989, they do a game called Clax, which is a match-three game, but instead of blocks of different shapes falling from the sky, there's a conveyor belt bringing different colored blocks towards you, forward-scrolling, to the bottom of a conveyor belt. Then you have to stack blocks of the same color to clear blocks. 
it actually was something that originally came from a sketch in an old television show where there was a conveyor belt in a bakery and they were trying to add things on top of it. Of course, there's the famous I Love Lucy chocolate skit as well, but I I don't think that's what's being referred to here. This was a skit, and the creator, Mark Pierce, doesn't remember the name of it, where there's this conveyor belt and there are baked goods coming down and people are trying to add things on top of it. He had actually animated something like that in Macromind Video Works, kind of a little animation that he had played around with. And then when Atari said they wanted a puzzle game to catch the Tetris wave, since they weren't doing Tetris anymore, he volunteered and created this game, Clacks, with the conveyor belt and stacking blocks and matching three of the same color. They had that puzzle game in 1989. They had another interesting puzzle game. It was a combination puzzle game strategy game in 1990 called Rampart uh, that came from the same people that did both Paperboy and 720 Degrees, Dave Ralston and John Solwitz. They were inspired by an old board game called Cathedral, where you had to put puzzle pieces essentially together to build castles to slowly take control of the entire board by fitting things together. They kind of took that basic idea, but then turned it into more Tetris-like pieces. They had this game where you had a building phase and a combat phase. These ships would come and bombard your castle and tear holes in your castle walls, and then after that was over, you had to use these Tetris kind of pieces to try to put your walls back together as best as you could. It was a multiplayer competitive game. It was, again, one of these quirky Atari products and uh, did fairly well for the company in 1990. So they did get to do some puzzle games, even with the Tetris thing falling apart. It was just uh, a little different. So that takes us through the 1980s at the company. They had a steady stream of decent hits. Gauntlet, I think, is the only one that you could say was a monster hit. But they had a steady stream of games that did pretty well from both themselves and from Namco. That kind of kept things going. They tried the home thing. It only went kind of so-so. At the beginning of the 90s, of course, the arcade industry is changing. I mean, the Japanese have kind of taken control of everything at this point, Namco decides to take back control of their own destiny. One aspect of Atari games we didn't talk about that we'll talk about briefly now is in addition to being a manufacturer, they were also an operator of arcades. They decided not long after their breakup with Namco, Nakajima decided, I don't know if he decided to do this because he wanted to emulate what Namco did in Japan in being an operator or emulate what Midway had done with Aladdin's Castle, I don't know. But they decided in the middle of 1987, not long after the breakup with Namco, to purchase an arcade operator in the southeastern United States called Barrel of Fun that was based out of Savannah, Georgia. So on July 30th, they purchased Barrel of Fun, which, like I said, primarily operated in the southeast United States. And it became a a wholly owned uh, subsidiary of Atari Games. They ran those for a few years. Uh, They expanded them a little bit, I think, in the southwest as well. They never really made it up to our neck of the woods. But kind of southeast, south, southwest, kind of that swath, they had this thing going. At this point in 1990, Namco decides to completely break away from Atari games. It's time to take control of their destiny totally in the United States. At the same time, Time Warner, which Warner Communications is now Time Warner. There's been a merger with Time Inc., Time Warner is seen with the NES that this video game thing is not a fad. 
And it's back. Yes, it's back. So they want to have a bigger piece of the pie again. So in 1990, in the middle of the year, to meet these competing needs of Namco to expand its presence in the U.S. and Time Warner to re-engage with the video game industry, it's the beginning of this whole Sillywood thing we've talked about before, they do a bit of a swap. Namco buys the Atari Operations Division, which is now operating somewhere around 40 arcades. And they're going to use that as part of their vehicle to more aggressively enter the U.S. market. They also end up buying Aladdin's Castle, and they turn Namco America into a a real force again. They're getting into operation in the United States. They're going to get into doing their own manufacturing in the United States. They're not going to release games through Atari games anymore. In exchange for that, they sell their share of Atari games to Time Warner. So Time Warner had 40% of the company. Namco had roughly 40% of the company. I think at the end of the day, it was a little less than that. And Atari Games had roughly 20% of the company with its own employees. So now Time Warner buys the Namco share as part of the swapping of assets. They get 79% of the company, and it's now wholly owned. Atari Ireland, the big factory that gives them their European distribution, does not come over in this. Time Warner is not interested in that. Namco takes over the Ireland factory. And Kevin Hayes, who had been running it for Atari, who had been employed at Atari for a long time at this point, he leaves and runs that operation for Namco. So now Atari Games is just U.S.-based. It doesn't have the big international reach anymore. And it is a subsidiary of Time Warner, and the Namco connection is severed. They're not releasing Namco Games in the United States anymore. Other than that, for the first couple of years... They basically just keep going on doing their own thing. The arcade market is changing. I wouldn't say they necessarily have as big hits as they did in the past. They try various things. Once the beat-em-ups and the fighting games start getting popular, they actually release a game that predates Mortal Kombat using digitized graphics in a one-on-one fighting game called Pit Fighter. It was inspired by a Jean-Claude Van Damme movie called Bloodsport that came out at about that time. It was kind of extending the beat-em-up craze that had already been going on for a couple of years. The digitized graphics were groundbreaking. The gameplay was rather boring. It was a hit in its time, but it's overshadowed very quickly by Street Fighter II and Mortal Kombat. But technically, they did the Mortal Kombat thing before Mortal Kombat did. No fatalities, but just using digitized characters. Another game that actually does pretty well in 1994, I know that's jumping ahead a couple of years, On the flip side of the fighting game phenomenon, after Street Fighter II and Mortal Kombat become big, they have a massive hit in 1994 with a game called Primal Rage, which was basically Dennis Harper again, who's the master of these kind of offbeat ideas, he's the guy that did Tubin, said, wouldn't it be fun to do Street Fighter with dinosaurs? He talked to an artist about it, and there was actually an artist that also thought it would be kind of a good idea and had already done some concept art. So they create Primal Rage, and the thing that they do that's kind of unique here is they use stop-motion animation. They actually build models of these dinosaurs and other prehistoric and fantastical creatures and do stop-motion animation to animate them really well for the time and make them look really good, kind of Ray Harryhausen-type stuff. Harper was a big Ray Harryhausen fan, so that's kind of where he got the idea from. That game is actually a big hit. Harper estimates that it sold something like 15,000 cabinets, which was fantastic 
1994. Just absolutely fantastic. At the same time, the company's paying attention to what's going on with full motion video and kind of this interactive movie stuff. They contract with a guy named Robert Weatherby, who had been involved in some of the driving games we talked about in the 80s, but had since founded his own company, to do a game using kind of interactive movie graphics and light guns because games like Terminator 2 had been big hits. Again, in this period in the 90s, they're becoming followers more. You can see that they're not leaders in the same way they were in the 80s. They're starting to narrow their focus into already existing genres, but they're still trying to be unique by doing special graphical things or whatnot, though it's it's not quite the same degree of uniqueness that they had in the 80s. It's getting harder to be unique as the industry consolidates around these particular genres. They don't end up doing the interactive movie stuff, but the basic idea that Robert Weatherby came up with after reading a magazine on aliens and secret Air Force bases in Nevada, uh, of course, becomes the massive hit Area 51. We go into more detail on its creation in our light gun episode, so I won't do a lot with that here. That's another hit. So they have some hits. Primal Rage is a hit. Area 51 is a hit. But they're no longer kind of the big, bad, innovative drivers that they used to be. They're being forced to funnel themselves into the same categories as everyone else. Driving games, fighting games, light gun games, the kind of stuff that's popular in this period of time. In the meantime, the company kind of gets all muddled together with everything else that's going on at Time Warner. Time Warner has a separate interactive division, Time Warner Interactive, that's made for the home market. They were continuing to let Atari games do their own thing and even continue their Tengen subsidiary as well. In 1993, they start consolidating all of this. They create a new position of senior VP of technology and put a Warner executive named Jeffrey Holmes in charge of it. He becomes responsible for Warner's new media division which is kind of this whole interactive movie, Sillywood kind of thing. And he's responsible for Atari Games, which had up to that point been mostly independent of all of this. Then in the middle of 1994, Hideyuki Nakajima tragically passes away from lung cancer. He'd been a big smoker for much of his life, and it caught up with him passes away on July 11th, a truly beloved figure in the industry. Myself, I haven't interviewed many people associated with Atari games, but Ethan Johnson, a friend of the show who we mention a lot, he's interviewed some people that were involved with Atari games at various times, including Kevin Hayes, who we discussed a second ago. Nakajima was a truly beloved figure within the industry. His passing was very tragic. It also cost Atari games its strong, independent, entrepreneurial voice at a time when everything was consolidating. Shortly before his death, Tengen was renamed Time Warner Interactive, and Atari Games was rebranded with a Warner logo. So it was Atari Games, but the Time Warner Interactive logo was being used in conjunction with it. They're starting to pull Atari Games more solidly into the Warner orbit. Then they lose Nakajima, who's their big, strong voice. And finally, that culminates in early 1995 with Time Warner Interactive 
becoming the lead entity. They reorganized. Dan Van Eldren, who I mentioned before, started on the assembly line at the company in 1973, worked his way up to technician, engineer, senior engineering executive, takes over as the president and chief operating officer of what becomes Time Warner Interactive in May 1995. This consolidates some separate interactive groups that the company had going elsewhere. They had a consumer game division that was separate from Atari. They had, of course, the Tengen stuff. They kind of pull all of this together under the Time Warner Interactive banner, and Atari Games becomes the coin-operated game division of Time Warner Interactive. They still use the Atari Games logo and everything on their product. The name Atari Games continues, but Atari Games is no longer the lead entity. It's no longer the company running the show. It's subservient to this broader Time Warner Interactive idea. They're now all mixed up in this Sillywood thing. Well, of course, this is a period of time when arcade games are not doing as well. Primal Rage and Area 51 aside, Atari is not having that many hits in the arcade in the mid-90s. Of course, the whole Sillywood thing doesn't work out for a lot of reasons that we talk about on our episode devoted to that, so Time Warner starts souring on video games again, the same way all of these media companies that rushed in to catch this new wave of interactive entertainment are similarly disillusioned. In 1996, early 1996, they decide to get out of this. Time Warner doesn't want anything to do with this anymore. And that is when they sell the company to Williams, to WMS Industries. Atari Games continues to persist as a subsidiary of Williams for almost another decade. That's truly the end of Atari being its own thing. Now they're just part of a larger arcade company which is Williams. That actually unites all three of the big American companies during the Golden Age. There were others, but the big three were Atari, Bally Midway, and Williams. Williams had previously bought Bally Midway's video game division in 1988. Now they've bought Atari Games, and so Williams is kind of the last big player in America in coin-op, though, of course, that doesn't last for very much longer. We cover all of that and more in... William's crazy story. Exactly. Of course, it seems to me that the way you put it there is that Atari very largely ceased to be a really viable entity once Warner got their hands in it and Nakajima died. Yeah, I think so. It, to me, that really just feels like that's when Atari games really just died. It's right at that point. They became a subsidiary. They're subservient to this other company. They're just this actuary thing. and I'm- once they're done being used at the end of the Sillywood era, they just go, okay, we're done with you. We're trashing you. Here, take it away. We don't want it. And they sell it off. Yeah, no, I mean, there's some truth to that. You know, and a lot of this is, is my own opinion and my own reading of the times, because uh, like I said, I haven't really talked to people from that period at the company, but that really does seem the way of it to be. I mean, as the arcade industry, the coin-op industry in the United States became less and less relevant, there really wasn't a good basis for them to remain solidly independent anymore. They kept themselves going in the 1980s, a time when the arcades were doing better by doing these quirky off-the-wall products that we talked about, like 720 Degrees, Tubin, Rampart, etc. Another one was Cyberball, which was basically what a football were played by robots that could beat each other up. They did these kind of interesting, quirky games. By 1990, that wasn't working anymore. The industry was moving in a different direction. 
and what had been a leader became a follower, even if they were still trying to do little innovative things like the stop motion in Primal Rage. They couldn't be a leader in the arcade anymore. They had tried to expand into the home, but they quite simply got greedy. They wanted it all and ended up screwing themselves over legally, so they were never able to build a solid home division that they could then leapfrog into. And then, yeah, they just got caught up in Time Warner's grasping. I don't think Time Warner really even necessarily wanted an arcade division. They were probably more interested in getting the consumer apparatus and the consumer connections that Tengen had built up so that they could establish a firm place for themselves in the home. So I don't think they were particularly interested in the arcade side of it ever, so that kind of became an afterthought. Uh, Of course, when you lose Nakajima, you lose a real forceful champion. And then, like you said, the whole Sillywood era burns out spectacularly. And so they're just discarded, cast off to the only company that's still interested. Williams keeps them going for a bit. Of course, they changed the name after a few years. Jack Trammell was never really caring very much about it. But once Hasbro got a hold of it, Hasbro really didn't like the idea of another Atari running around. So they changed the name to Midway Games West. Midway gets out of coin-op altogether in 2001. Midway Games West only survives another couple of years after that, trying to do home stuff. But of course, that was never their expertise, so they were never going to be a great producer of home things at this point. So then Williams just kind of shutters it, and that's that. That's kind of an overview of this period of history. One and done, a long episode, but we did it in one. (laughs) I told you we would. Oh, yeah. I'm sure I'm going to hate myself editing this one. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, in our next episode, we are not going to talk about our great overview thing. We still have one more before that happens. So what are we going to cover in our next episode? Well, seeing as how we're about to do a topic that's really, really big and broad, I suppose it would probably be a good contrast to do something very narrow and focused. Even more narrow and focused than a lot of our episodes are. And this is a good time to talk a little bit about one of my personal favorite series from back in the day. A series that I believe was truly transformative to computer game entertainment, but doesn't often get the full credit it deserves for what it helped unleash. And I am, of course, talking about the Wing Commander series. Didn't we sort of talk about that already in the Origin episode? It is true, of course, that we talked about Wing Commander a little bit in the Origin episode. It became one of the twin pillars of Origin in its second decade, along with Ultima. There will be some rehash, as we've said before. It's it's almost impossible not to a little bit. We'll do more a real deep dive and really get in on who Chris Roberts was, what Wing Commander was, what the sequels were. Just a deep dive into this very important series in the changing face of computer games in the early 1990s. It would be going way too far to say that without Wing Commander you wouldn't get Doom because the id guys would have done their thing regardless of what Chris Roberts was doing at Origin. But it is true that the move towards more impressive PC games with more impressive multimedia and more impressive graphics, more impressive gameplay, etc., got its start with Wing Commander in 1990. That was kind of the game that showed that the PC had arrived and it could do more than just stodgy old strategy games and simulations and RPGs. It's worthy of it. It's a nice, narrow, super-focused topic right before we do the huge, broad topic. All right, so we'll cover Wing Commander in all its glory. We might even talk about that movie. 
<laughs> but we will see you, hopefully, if you are able to make it live June 28th. There will probably be around noon central United States. But we will see you next time on They Create Worlds. Check out our show notes at podcast.theycreateworlds.com where we have links to some of the things that we discussed in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's video game history blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com. Alex's book, They Create Worlds, The People and Companies That Shape the Video Game Industry, Volume 1, can now be ordered through CRC Press and at major online retailers. Email us at feedback at theycreateworlds.com. Our Twitter is TCW Podcast. Please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash theycreateworlds. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward, found at joshwoodward.com slash song slash airplane mode, used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Rolla Music, found at freemusicarchive.org, used under a Creative Commons attribution license. 